Good, good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life. I'm Bill Curley and this is Holly Hudley and we're going to talk today. Yeah, we are. A year. It's been a year. Wow. Yeah, it has. We've been sort of acknowledging that year of COVID all week, I guess. It's such a weird anniversary and a, such a strange thing. I mean, here we are at over half a million deaths in this country alone, and we don't have a way to really process or grieve that. Right. And, and um, I don't know when it will fully arrive, but um, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And if we can persevere for a few more months, I think you will begin to see us gather again. I don't know I don't, what that looks like right now, but as we get more and more people vaccinated uh, and the cases drop, that we will we will assemble again sometime. And I want to thank you for hanging in there. And especially, I want to thank all of you for your generosity. Mm, yeah, we've with with the money that you all who have been able to contribute have continued to do so. We've been able to give directly to organizations providing relief during this time, rent relief, groceries, bills, for families that are in danger of being evicted if they don't have it. So that's pretty awesome. So, so far this year, we've given away $20,000. I think 15. We gave away five and, and then, then 15. 10. Oh, yeah. 10. Yeah. 15,000. Mm -hmm. I exaggerated. It's just part of what come, <laughs> comes with ordination, you know. <laughs> So thank yeah. you very much for that. And we have a podcast that we've done for a while. Yeah, almost a year. We're at number 42, so that's almost a year. We started it a little later in COVID, but it comes out Thursday mornings. And actually this week, Karen Richards-Kwan will join us, which will be fun. Yeah. That will be fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll let you know that it's Lent here at St. Paul's. Holy Week is coming up in a few weeks. and. All you have to do is to go to the stpaulshouston.org website and see all of the opportunities there are for connecting in a wide variety of ways. Whatever you are interested in, uh, worship-wise, liturgy-wise, education-wise, volunteer-wise, uh, whatever it is, there's an opportunity for you here at St. Paul's. I want to thank Olivia Watson, who's behind the camera today and John Watson, who's the floor manager, and they're running the ship by themselves. Yeah. Pretty much. They've steadily shown up Sunday after Sunday. So, no matter who you are, no matter <laughs> where you are on your spiritual journey, whether you are a pajama person or a wine and cheese person, you're welcome here. One of the convictions that is behind all the teaching that we do is this. When we see ourselves, when we find ourselves in the heart of sacred mystery, we begin to find sacred mystery in us. And further, and this is what is essential for healing and wholeness, both for ourselves and for our planet, if we do the religious and spiritual work that is required to grow in these two areas, we begin to see that sacred mystery is in other people too. 
Our ongoing spiritual work is to learn to increase the circle of inclusion to where it embraces everyone. And what is required for this journey are three things, openness, willingness, and radical honesty. Now, I'm not saying this is easy or, or quick. Crossing the territory between the no longer and the not yet has an element of risk. We leave behind a shoreline that we have known, familiar terrain. We set out on the journey, and another shoreline is not yet in view. And that makes a lot of people very anxious. They want to go back to the familiarity of the old. They want to be able to grab some certainty about the future. So we've got to step out beyond what um, in psychology we call our fate and <clears throat> be willing to find and embrace our destiny. Now, our hope lies in the fact that there's guidance for this journey. It comes both from within us, our own basic intuition, what Thomas Merton would refer to in his writings as the true self, and it comes from without, the wisdom, the perennial wisdom that is found in the living religions of all ages. And that's what Carl Jung referred to when he said that healing was to be found in the truths that the living religions have provided their adherents across the ages. One of our favorite quotes, and Holly and I use it both fairly frequently, um, is a line by a 13th century mystic by the name of Meister Eckhart. By the way, Eckhart is not his um, first is name. His huh? is his first I mean, it is his first name. <laughs> his family name seems to be von Hockham, although there's some confusion about that a long time ago. Just like Jesus Christ, first, last name. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but Eckhart got a master's degree mm -hmm. in Paris uh, in 1302. And after that, he just simply became referred to as Meister, Master Eckhart. Mm -hmm. So here's the quote that we use a lot. The eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. Now, a problem is that we're not taught to see this way. In spite of the fact that <clears throat> this wisdom is in every living religion, since the Enlightenment, we have been taught to look at and not to see. So we have learned to analyze, quantify, measure, weigh, and so forth, things and people. And we think that when we look at them, we see them, but that is not the case. And I think it takes a great deal of courage and humility to know or to admit that we don't really know the other. We know only our subjective idiosyncratic experience of the other, whether that be an animate or inanimate object. Now, at the heart of Buddhism, Hinduism uh, is the quest to see that one's identity is one with the sacred. Buddhism is all about becoming enlightened seeing. Uh, the Jewish prophets railed against those in the political and religious establishment who did not see the plight of the needy. And uh, justice, was, of course, was Jesus' central concern. The belief that there was no one who was not worth God's trouble. So a primary metaphor in the Jesus narrative, both spoken and acted out, 
is the desire to cure blindness, the lament that people have eyes, but they don't see. Now, this kind of seeing is hard to do. I, I heard a colleague of mine once say that Jesus did not have disciples. He had disciples. For example, they would ask him to explain, to explain something about the community of empowerment he wanted to bring into existence, and he would tell them a story, and they would look at him and say, duh, I don't really get this. And they didn't get it. The people closest to him didn't get it. Now, if you read the Jesus narrative, and I encourage you to do that, you can read through the Gospel of Mark in probably less than half an hour, uh, get a good translation. Don't just assume you know it, but if you read through it, <clears throat> you will see that when Jesus spoke to people, even those closest to him didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And I think that ought to give us a little lesson in humility and sort of dampen down our arrogance when we think that we know the answer. In Matthew, which is the narrative that we're following right now, dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about people already being in a loving relationship with God and their need to nurture that relationship through all sorts of things. Giving to the poor, taking care of the, the widows and orphans, that sort of thing, and also through prayer. So it is in chapter 6 in the Matthew narrative where we find what is called the Lord's Prayer. In the Luke narrative, there is another version of the Lord's Prayer, and this one is the result of two disciples going to Jesus and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, there is no scholar who believes that the Lord's Prayer as we currently have it was something Jesus constructed. It was something that was constructed by his followers in the years after his execution. It was a way that they stayed connected to him. It was a way that they gave encouragement to themselves about what the central message of Jesus was. I think that we can safely assume that Jesus' disciples knew and experienced Jesus to be a person who had a profound spiritual practice. He is said to have prayed often, mostly alone. But no doubt his disciples heard some of his prayers and they imitated him. <clears throat> and they prayed, as we began to talk about last week, that the community of empowerment that Jesus talked about would become a reality. Or, as it is put in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. Eugene Peterson translates that phrase, set the world aright. Hmm. Question is, what is the will of God? How does Neil Douglas Klotz um, translate this line? Do you remember off the top of your head? Soften the ground of my being so that your desires may be fulfilled. I think that's it. Yeah. So I want to add um, one of my favorite quotes about seeing, um, in addition to the Meister Eckhart one that we both love. And it's from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And he said in his book, The Phenomenon of Man, which is probably his best known writing, seeing, one could say that the whole of life lies in seeing, if not ultimately, at least essentially. To be more is to be more united 
And this sums up and is the very conclusion of the work to follow, but unity grows, and we will affirm this again, ported by an increase of consciousness, of vision. So the evolution of the eyeball um, supports this idea. I gave a talk on that some time ago, maybe two years ago in here. And the eyeball went from a light spot on the top, on the head of an amoeba, if you will, to the water-based eyeball that is the fish that is also ours. And that evolved from um, being able to see light and dark to color to developing insight. So we have an inner eye also. And it's only by honing our insight that we can learn to see the kind of world that Jesus envisioned. When we get stuck trying to nail down God's will for us, it's a missing the forest for the trees kind of deal. We get hung up, I think, on the particulars of the what's rather than the how's. And the essential question I think we should be asking, at least how I would surmise um, Jesus' message, is not what does God want for my life, but how shall I live? Or as Viktor Frankl put it, what does life want from me? For a long time in my life, when I was younger, I thought of myself as a bad religious person. Turns out I was really just anxious about it. I wasn't settled in this walk, and I wasn't comforted in prayer by answers from God. I had friends who said they heard God speak to them, who talked the talk about God's plan for their lives, down to what job they got, and even what car they would buy. I've since learned I don't really think God deals in capitalism. I don't think he he or she particularly cares what car I drive. I don't even know that God knows cars exist. Who knows? I don't know. There are a lot of emphasis in that circle, however, about finding and praying for the one. You know, that one true love of your life and God had handpicked for you from all the seven billion people in the world. I had a lot of anxiety about how this one person would find me and how I would know it was really them if I wasn't hearing God answer my prayers. For a long time, I was jealous of those who were so confident that they had heard from God. And so I prayed harder. I furrowed my eyebrow hard, even more. I'm sure that's part of why I have wrinkles now. <laughs> and I tried to squeeze these answers out from God, like, come on, God, just tell me. I don't do that anymore. It's not how I pray. And God's answers, whatever they are, never came to me via some direct connect. I've never heard a voice or beheld a burning bush in my path. Maybe I'm not doing it right. I'll definitely hold that possibility for those of you who are really confident that you hear something. But I've also arrived at the conclusion that there's nothing to do to find God's will. Entanglement is real for sure. You know those moments when you're thinking of something and it kind of and it happens or it manifests. Like, Entanglement is this sort of strange combination of intuition and just the way things are. Mm -hmm. And when it happens, it feels like a divine appointment. Mm -hmm. And that's usually when we're not anxious about it, is when we're more open to that field of relationship or field of entanglement, is when we're not, please, God, tell me what to do. <laughs> do you think so? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Jung had a word for it. Yeah. Synchronicity. Synchronicity. That was good. Want to do that again? Synchronicity. <laughs> Anyhow, entanglement is also the way of the universe. Quantum entanglement states that from the smallest to the largest, the movement of all things impact every other thing. 
I once asked Bill some years ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, about what he thought about God's will, what he would say when people said, oh, that's, you know, the will of God. He sent me this essay called No Secret Plan by Philip Carey. You refound it and resent it to me this week, and it was very much as I remembered it. He's a philosopher and theologian at Eastern University. And in this essay, he addresses the anxiety that many of his evangelical students felt trying to find God's will for their lives. In fact, he has an entire book called um, Letter to an Anxious Christian. Mm. Yeah, I haven't read it. Um, And he's like, it can't be found. This way of thinking that God has a detailed plan for each of us and that if we don't fulfill it, we're somehow a colossal failure at most or disappointed at least. At what kind of God, what kind of God would play this epic game of hide and seek with us just to potentially dupe us in the end if we don't figure it out? So even though Carrie refers to God as he and seems to have a kind of out there God being in mind, I think he is spot on about this. God's will doesn't exist. That's sort of scary to say right here, right? <laughs> we'll keep waiting for the lightning bolt. I know. <laughs> so what he says is we are supposed to make our own decisions, be our own moral agents, seek to become mature adults who grow in wisdom and understanding. We're also supposed to make mistakes and learn from them. We're not supposed to be handed answers by this divine string puller, At every turn in our lives, we would not learn from that. We are supposed to grow up, which our friend Yarmudo Miraku has an entire book about. And we show that book every Sunday in the announcement slide. It's one that both of us have read and think that you should read too. It's called When the Disciple Arrives. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, Pierre-Terre Deschardins said it's a groping. Evolution is a groping forward a sort of grappling and struggle even. So Carrie essentially lays out that the whole of God's will can be summarized by saying, live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. If ever we have anxiety about what God wants from us, I think we can turn and ask, does what I think I want or what I think I'm asking for create more justice, more mercy, And am I doing this to satisfy my ego or to contribute to a greater sense of good in the world? That's it. It's that simple. Justice, mercy, and humility. So I repeat, there is nothing to find or do about God's will. It's just to be. And the more I grow in this sort of, I want to say like mystical, non-dual way of thinking, the more that I think God is not doing anything. God is just being more just, more merciful, and more humble. Now those words come from the first axial age in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish prophetic tradition, and you can find them in the book of Amos Mm -hmm. in the Hebrew scriptures. We've talked a lot about that first axial age business, which happened it's it's when what I call the evolution of right religion occurred mm-hmm. and somewhere between the 11th and the 7th centuries BC. And it is other focused. 
don't do to somebody else what you would not want to do to you. And, and what would motivate or shape those actions are those three qualities that you just mentioned, uh, justice, mercy, and humility. And that, that's how we have to live. There is a struggle, I think. I mean, it, it, you know, if you want to say what is the will of God, the will of God is that, that mm-hmm. we do those things and that we have a commitment. After we have done the survival issues, handled the survival issues, uh, we have a, a responsibility to grow. Yeah. So occasionally in counseling, I would have somebody lament to me that life was not fair. And I, <laughs> my kind of smart aleckery response is, you're right, it isn't. If it were fair, you would be living in sub-Saharan Africa and wondering if your baby would be alive tomorrow. Because that's where the majority of people on our planet mm-hmm. live. Mm-hmm. We're the blessed. Mm. So we'll, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But they're not the unblessed. We can't think of the people. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're unfortunate. They suffer. By our standards. Yeah. And, and for sure, everyone on this planet deserves food, a place to go to the bathroom, and a place to lay their heads. For sure. But the question remains for people. Does God send earthquakes to some places and not others? Hurricanes to some part of the Gulf Coast and not others? Does God have a favorite country? A race? Um, God really care who wins the Super Bowl? <laughs> <laughs> Only when it's Tom Brady. Uh, <laughs> so I, to, to begin to get an answer, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a true story. And um, all of my stories are true stories. Um, Oops. Well, I just bypassed about four slides. <laughs> that's okay. You got caught up. In I, got, I did. I got preachy. <laughs> So I just want to say all the stories I tell are truth. Some of them just haven't happened yet, but this is a true story. Um, There was a pastor who had had a long, very successful, meaning he was much beloved ministry in this one church. He'd been there almost 40 years, almost the entirety of his ministry. He'd grown up with and in that, that community of faith. And it came time for him to retire, and they were going to honor this man of the cloth with a great celebration. By the way, if you've ever wondered where the phrase man of the cloth came from, as I have, I looked it up, and it used to be that um, people who were professions, were professionals, wore uniforms. Like a baker would wear a white cloak, and it was referred to as the baker's cloth. And um, for some reason, um, somewhere in about the 17th century, that, that usage of person of the cloth fell away for everyone except clergy. And then the phrase just got used to be clergy as in general, a person of the cloth, of the uniform. And many clergy do wear uniforms. So at any rate, it's this man's retirement approached, he was interviewed by a reporter from the local newspaper, and the reporter asked him, "Um, do you have any regrets looking back over your ministry? And the minister said, yes. I wish I had preached more comfort. Mm. People hurt. There are a lot of hurting people. Every one of us, every one of us is dealing with something that scares us, 
something that makes us clutch up. It's a concern we have about somebody uh, who may get COVID. Uh, you know what your hurts are. And so it made sense to say, I wish I had preached more comfort. I had a homiletics professor in seminary. His name was Gordon Clonard. He's a man I love very much. Tragically, he was killed in an automobile accident um, about the time I came to Houston. And I remember him saying in a graduate seminar one time to us, seminars in homiletics, and he said, find out what makes people cry on their pillow at night and preach to that. We live in a time when a brand of conservative Christianity, sociologists and historians are calling it Christian nationalism, has injected itself into right-wing politics in a way that the very evangelicals who are now so supportive of this Christian nationalistic movement would have laughed in your face eight years ago if you had said, this is where they're going to end up. But what's going on now in the name of Christianity is causing more divisiveness and more divisions. One example of this is the departure just this week announced by conservative Bible teacher Beth Moore. She said that she was leaving the Southern Baptist Convention because of its marriage to Donald Trump and his ideologies. Now, I'm not sure how this leaving of the convention on her part is going to look because she's going to remain a member of her church, which is the first Baptist church here in Houston. Oh. And it is certainly part of the Southern Baptist Convention. But there is this divisiveness that's coming up. I'm sure you've heard people say something like, there's no need to wear a mask. God will protect you from the virus. Or if God intends for you to get the virus, you'll get it. And many of these same people who are assured of God's protection still feel the need to arm themselves with weapons to protect themselves. So back to the pastor who said he wished he'd preach more comfort. I can understand that because, as I said, there's not a one of us who isn't hurting in some way, anxious about what tomorrow will bring for us or for a loved one. One of the things that I'm convinced is a solid truth from the best of all living traditions and from evolutionary cosmology is that, to use Richard Rohr's phrase, everything belongs. Everyone belongs. There is no mostly disinterested God out there who occasionally takes a stick and stirs up stuff to occasionally make our side win <laughs> or lose. We're all part of one belonging system. There's one system and we're all a part of it. There's no separation between the ego's artificial boundaries of sacred, secular, psychological, spiritual, human, divine. They're just two sides of one coin. The core of Jesus' teaching is that I and the and the loving and safe source are one, and so are you. That was his first preaching when he came out of his temptation experience. I believe that there is within every person, within you and me, a longing 
to realize the truth of this. We all come from, we all return to the same source. And in the meantime, the best of us wants to experience that, un that union. Now, I have a hunch you agree with that. Hmm. And yet, we spend so much of our time excluding, judging, and separating. We spend so much of our time and energy deciding who does not belong. I want to go back to one thing that you said, you know, this sort of idea of the blessed and the unblessed. You didn't use the blessed and the unblessed, but when we begin to think like that, we're automatically thinking in exclusion. The blessed and the unblessed, the fortunate and the unfortunate. Instead of looking at and we'll get into this later, human responsibility and sort of who we perceive to be blessed or unblessed, right? Mm -hmm. um, the culture of domination versus uh, participation or cooperation, culture of colonialism has created this culture of exclusion and separation. And that's worldwide, but we specifically in this country inherited, inherited a culture of domination and colonialism. You know, because of European wills to conquer the whole world, and that's who founded this country. So we really inherited that sort of European domination and colonialism idea, and thus created a caste system worldwide of the blessed and the unblessed. And, and you, but that's not arbitrary. That is human done. Right. That, is, that is human hand in that. And you will notice that there is a flow in these talks that we have been doing. Yeah. The... Uh, as it would would be in the prayer, there's a connection. We talked last week about this community of empowerment, mm -hmm. and that now we're saying that the will of God is to realize that and to make that a real experience for everybody. Right. That's right. inclusive. Yeah. And then we'll take it another step next week when we get into give uh, us our daily bread. Right. Right. So. Whew. So what you said, we all come from and return to the same source. We also live within and among that source. This is not a before and after. This is the space in between as well. We live and move and have our being in that source. I believe our task is to continually attend to that relational field. So healing looks like more inclusion, more expansion. Cornel West, um, a favorite activist, scholar, author, famously said, Justice is what love looks like in public. So to love justice, of course we have to define justice to fully understand this. Plato, to whom all philosophy is a footnote, it seems. <laughs> justice is not mere strength, but it is a harmonious strength. Justice is not the right of the stronger, but the executive harmony of the whole. And in more poetic words, Hafiz wrote of justice and mercy. I changed my poem. <laughs> and still, after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. What if we lived in this land of a whole lit sky, in the what ifs, in the possibilities, and not in the certainties and the I knows? What if we lived with the possibility that that God is just that possibility rather than certainty. My kids have been watching Cosmos. I think you've been watching it too. 
narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And it's, it's really incredible. I mean, he's such a great narrator of really high ideas and makes them really fun and tangible. He makes it really enlightening for the kids. They, um, I saw him speak once in person. Have you ever seen him speak in person? So he comes to the stage just wearing socks. Not, not just socks. I should just say he's dressed, but he has socks and no shoes on. That would be hilarious, though, if he came out with just socks. Um, I love that, though, this kind of casual, what they, people call him that rock star of astrophysicists because he's able to reach a wide audience. We had a clergy on the staff here one time, Eleanor Colvin. You remember uh, yes, Eleanor? Yes, I loved Eleanor. She was, yeah. She's a poet. Yeah. I think she's now serving in, co in college station, okay. I think. Yeah. Where, that's where that she is. That sounds about but right. But she preached and talked in her sock feet. Yeah, I love that. I mean, feet. it's just like, let me earth myself. Yeah. You know, let me just kind of be here now. So lately, my kids, because of watching Cosmos, have been fond of coming up to me and saying, I'm not really hugging you. This is just my atoms rubbing up against each other. It's a pretty terrible defense for harassment, but it works for my kids right now at this age. Anyhow, he said in the episode they watched the other night, and I was kind of doing other things and had it in the background, but I did catch this. He said, that's the really cool thing about science. We don't have to pretend we have all the answers. So Christians, at least the ones like many of the ones I grew up with, are fond of having all the answers, a direct hotline to God. I know what God wants. But what if it isn't like that? What if we could just get really comfortable with ideas and theories and possibilities instead of certainty? If we don't rely on certainty, and if we lean too far into scientism, that's a certain kind of certainty, just as if we lean too far into fundamentalism is a certain kind of certainty. There's no room for growth. This can be true for religious theories as well as for scientific theories. We need to leave room for expansion. We can't put our ideas in a black box and then never open that black box again. I'm going to guess that Jesus didn't think he had all of the answers for all time, but he gave some pretty good theories for us to live by and expand our lives with. He preached justice, mercy, and humility. Certainty leaves no room for growth. In these commandments of justice, mercy, and humility, there's a lot more room for breath, for pausing, for wonder, what does life want from me? You know how when you were little, your shoe grew like, your foot grew like a whole inch every month it seemed, right? My, 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 young, my middle son can wear my shoes now. So he, he's a, a head t shorter than me, but has my same size feet. And that's like just been in the last six months, his feet, his feet have grown probably one and a half sizes. And every time he went shoe shopping, well, I don't know, I think mothers were kind of onto something. The mothers would say, well, get the bigger shoes. You'll grow into them eventually, right? So we got blisters and they were mostly scuffed up by the time we actually grew into them, but we did eventually. And when we finally fit them, they were creased in all the right places, they shaped to our feet. In essence, they were just right. I wonder if we could have that kind of motherly attitude about shoe shopping, about religion. That our mothers were really onto something. They don't have your size just yet, baby. So we're just gonna buy the, foot, the size up and you'll grow into it. I, that would, that's, there's no anxiety in that sort of religion. You'll grow into it, right? And I, I remember once hearing John Dominic Crossan, um, who participated in a Faith and Reason seminar here 
in Houston some years ago. Do you remember, recall that with Joan Chittister and Marcus Borg? And the mm -hmm. title of the seminar was, Is Christianity Dead? He kind of summed up the seminar at the very end, like the last five minutes, by saying, I'm going to answer that question. He said, Christianity might die, but God won't. Because matter won't. Because the way of things won't. Because being itself won't die. So the question still remains, how do we live and move and have our being in that reality? In justice, mercy, and humility. Those things shouldn't die. Among other tidbits of wisdom were Marcus Borg's remarks on how we should do religion. He had that sort of we'll buy a bigger size shoe idea about religion. He commented on, on how much damage doctrinal religion has done to young people, to kids. When you say to a kid, that's God's will, baby, that your turtle died. Or your baby sister, right? Young people get ruined by that kind of explanation of God. And they stress themselves out and to tie themselves up into knots over what's God's plan for their lives if, and whether or not they're doing it right. He surmised that religion was something that kids should just say, oh, that's something my grandmother does, and then just keep rolling along on their skateboard. I loved that sort of relax the field idea. You'll get there someday. You'll ask all the questions about life that you need to, but that's just what you need to do in the second half of life. Mm -hmm. For now, enjoy being a kid. <laughs> and I think that for, for me as a parent who could easily stress about what I was teaching my kids or not, whether I was teaching it right or not, that helped me to relax the field. I don't think kids should be worried about doing God's will. They need to just learn how to grow up, learn how to make mistakes and learn from them. He thinks the only, kid, the only thing kids need to learn about God is the ability to wonder and love. It's like Neil deGrasse Tyson says, you don't have to have all the answers. So religion, in other words, is something we need to grow into, like that pair of shoes. I think we need to do a better job of teaching our kids to wonder. But when I wrote that, I immediately thought, no, kids know how to wonder. Yes. We need to learn how to wonder, to embody our inner child again. It's what Jesus said. Yeah. Become as a child. Yeah. And I think of humility like wonder. Mm -hmm. You know, wonder takes us out of ourselves and helps us to know that A, it's not all about us, and B, we may never understand what it is. Mm -hmm. And there's a humility in that. So it leads one to marvel at the stars, to discover that they're shifting, and conclude that the earth is actually moving, not the sun. And then later, as you keep watching that shifting, it tells us that the universe is expanding in all directions, stretching towards infinity. That is an impossible notion to conceive of, infinity. It's just like God's will. It's impossible to know, but it is not impossible to trust that it just is. The universe is so big and we are so small. I've shown this video, this is one clip from it. I'm not gonna show the whole video, but it's called The Most Astounding Fact. And if you look it up, you can rewatch it. It's a beautiful video. Another one that Neil deGrasse Tyson narrates. I love this line when he's asked, what is the most astounding fact that you can share with us about the universe? He says, when I look up at the night sky and I know that yes, we are part of this universe, 
We are in this universe, but perhaps more important than both of those facts is that the universe is in us. When I reflect on that fact, when I look up, many people feel small because we are small and the universe is so big. I feel big because my atoms came from those stars and there's a level of connectivity in that. We are the universe just by being alive. I think connectivity is what it is all about. How do we feel connected to what surrounds us? And I just want religion to feel as big as the universe. And I wonder, can we do that? Can we conceive of that? Yeah. So I don't mean to throw you a curve, uh -huh. but I'm about to throw you a curve. Yeah. <laughs> I do love it when people say stuff like I that. I do. I'm like, hold on, let me get my mitt. <laughs> So um, you said a minute ago, and I agree with you, that, that, that on one side of walking a path is fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. Don't go there. On the other side of that path is scientism. Don't go there. So would you say that though it is not scientism, that the path that we're trying to walk between the no longer and the not, not yet is in fact informed by cosmological evolution that that's the path? Yes, because I would think that if we look at evolution as change, as continual uh, newness, mm -hmm. as infinity, as expansiveness, as the way, mm -hmm. that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Science is also just trying to explain the way of the universe. So what we're doing is acknowledging that we are in fact evolving. We are in fact evolving and God is reality, not separate from, not apart from, not preeminent to, but part of. And so to me, God evolution being itself all synonyms. Mm. Okay. I'd like to have, spend the whole time talking about that. Sometime. All right. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about theodicy. <laughs> We can't talk about the will of God without talking about theodicy. I'm sure when you woke up this morning, theodicy was the first thing on your mind. Or when you tuned in to this live stream, you were thinking, <laughs> boy, I hope they talk about theodicy today. We're gonna, your wish is fulfilled. Theodicy. Theodicy comes from two words, two Greek words. Theos meaning God. Dike, which is a Greek word meaning trial or judgment. And it means the vindication of God. The term theodicy was coined by Gottfried Leibniz in 1720. And it means really justifying God. Or more easily understood, theodicy deals with the issue of why can a loving and all-powerful God allow evil Things to happen. Now, this is not an effort to defend God. Rather, it seeks to show that it is reasonable to believe in God even in the face of evil in the world and bad things happening, especially to good people. I remember when Harold S. Kushner's a, a rabbi, he, was a, he is a rabbi, he's still alive. He had a child who at age three was diagnosed with a degenerative disease that meant his child would not live to be a teenager. Sad, tragic thing. 
In response to that, Kushner wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It became, and it has remained, a bestseller in the field of dealing with the issue of suffering. Now, I do not know Rabbi Kushner, but what I do know is that when this book came out, I took an immediate offense to the title because it implies that if a person meets certain ethical, moral, doctrinal, some standards, then that person is a good, good person. person and therefore is exempt from having bad things happen to them. It's awful theology, just awful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I did the first years of my clinical training in a hospital, and um, I heard some form of, this question, why did God do this to me? Especially in the, in the, when the death of a child. But um, it could be any death. And, it, you know, it was clear to me as day uh, that there were people who came into the hospital who never had thought about the possibility that their loved one could die or that they could die. It just never entered their minds. It's a good thing to have death sitting over your shoulder is a good thing. <laughs> Good teachers. <laughs> why did God allow this to happen? Or why didn't God answer my prayer to save my child or my husband or my wife or my mother? Um, and I, I, I have heard in, in my ministry, I have heard pastors say to grieving parents things like, well, you know, God needed your baby in heaven more than you need your baby down here. Why, wow, this makes me want to vomit. <laughs> It's abusive theology. Yeah. It's abusive. Yeah, it is. And, and for sure I've heard some, not, not, this is not like my parental um, teaching from my family of origin, but it's just, I've heard some version of that in my religious life from various people. Mm -hmm. It's, well, it's, we can't pretend to understand the will of God. And, it, and what that did for me is push me away from God. Well, I don't want to understand that God. You know, mm -hmm. and one of the things that we have done is we have had this kind of transactional relationship with God, right? And, and that transactional relationship in some ways could be called a capitalist relationship. I give you this, God, you give me that. I'm a good person, God, you give me no pain. And, and all wise teachings teach us that pain is growth. Pain is how we grow up. And, you know, you've, you've, you're fond of saying um, God protects us from nothing but sustains us from, in everything. And, and even that, right, we have to tease that out a little bit. What is it that's sustaining us? It's just reality sustains us. It's the connections we create. It's the beliefs. It's the rituals that we maintain. Having mm -hmm. a daily spiritual practice sustains us in grief and pain. So this question of evil, I, I think this is one that comes up all the time in circles of philosophy, circles of theology, even circles of science. How do we understand destruction as much as we understand evolution and creation? In, in the talk, I've referred now to Neil deGrasse Tyson a couple times, but in the talk that I saw him give, he said, destruction is happening all the time in the cosmos, all the time. Things are crashing into each other. They're exploding into bits. Do stars are dying and being reborn. There's no intent behind that. It's not evil 
that it's happening. It just is. Now, the hard part is how do we tease out human ethics in relation to what is evil? I'm way off script here, so if you're looking for where I am, <laughs> is, you know, we have to, where do we place ourselves in that sort of willful behavior of evil or willful behavior of doing harm? And it's a question that we haven't, um, we haven't successfully answered in my mind just yet. You're going to today. You're going to successfully answer it. Pay attention, folks. I suppose this idea of evil is the flip side of what is God's will. If the will of God is presumably positive, then evil must be not God's will. So it must be the devil. And that, that idea that there's also this like good being and bad being outside of us is also relinquishing us from personal responsibility. If I can blame the bad things on evil and the good things on God, then I can remove myself from being part of that cycle of events. So it's really mind-bending because if we take the stance, as Richard Rohr would say, it all belongs, then that means that evil destruction also belongs. So even though I've moved away from conceiving an actual being as God, I will never accept it when people cast off terrible acts as God's will, like the death of a child or the Holocaust or the murder of George Floyd. I can accept, however, that in our incompleteness, in our human evolution, that we commit evil when we are not integrated. And this was Carl Jung's gift to psychology and spirituality. The integrated person is a whole person who does not act out of unconscious desires or behaviors. We still have them, we just don't act out of them. It's a kind of cosmic growing pain. This is where Teilhard de Chardin says this groping happens that we go through these cosmic birthing pains at every stage of human evolution. To be frank, I don't know if we can ever expect a universe where evil doesn't exist. Without evil, how do we know what is good? This all goes back to how we conceive of God as the string puller or as the string itself, as being itself. Being is, it doesn't do. I think this is where, Bill, we might diverge from some folks in our class or our church. It seems that neither of us have a concept of God as sort of this string puller, an answerer of things who does or causes events. This gets at that philosophical question of meaning, too. But my takeaway from zero theology, to point back to John Tucker and the lovely discussion we got to have with him, and from the many books we've read lately, it, the most important contribution we can do is to live a just, merciful, and humble life. So this is our personal and moral imperative. Religious rituals and beliefs should just give us a framework or a rationalization for why we should pursue justice, mercy, and humility. The rest is just details. So to go back to your... Um observation, and again, this is something that we could spend a long time uh, fleshing out, the ethical context of suffering. How do you understand that? And I think, and again, this is in John Tucker's book, but the, the most brilliant explication of that that he has in Zero Theology is the statement of Jesus from the cross. Mm. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They are acting from that. 
unconscious, fear-based space. And we've all done that. That's an ethical stance. Yeah. Now, I, I, I have seen more people give up on the Christian adventure or the spiritual adventure because of the kinds of things that you're talking about than any other single thing. So um, I think this is one of the things that has led me and us to do the work that you're seeing right now. The most pressing theological issue of our time, of our lives, Mm -hmm. is to open the door to a new kind of religious and spiritual future by closing the door on this mistaken and very inadequate idea of God. I'm going to repeat that. This is the most pressing theological issue of our time and lives. To to open the door on a new kind of religious and spiritual future by closing the door on this mistaken, inadequate notion of God. I've said more than once, I will continue to say it. If there is one thing I want to be remembered for in my ministry in this church, it is God is not out there. God's here, here, there, in (laughs) us, everywhere. So one of the people who helped me do this understanding, and this is the work of theodicy, is a a British theologian by the name of Leslie Weatherhead. He's no longer with us. He wrote many, many books. If you go on the Internet and look him up, you can see him. Uh, The Christian Agnostic it's one of his influential books for me. And the other book, uh, which is written even uh, earlier, The Will of God. The Will of God was written in 1944. And I read um, both of them while I was, one, The Will of God when I was in the seminary, and one, uh, The Christian Agnostic when I was teaching. I loved them both. They were very, very helpful to me. Uh, the Christian Agnostic, um, gave me the permission to stay within the church and be critical of it at the same time. And, and the Will of God book is the one that really helped me understand this question about why do bad things happen? And I'm going to refrain from saying to good people. Bad things, what we call bad things, tragedies, destruction, um, they happen all the time. And we or sometimes the recipient of them. So why do bad things happen? I'm going to give you, this is, these are Leslie Weatherhead's headings, but they're my amplification. Uh, The first reason that things happen is statistical probability. About 11 years ago now, I had quite unexpectedly quadruple bypass surgery. They popped my chest open. And my cardiologist was one of the best in the nation we came to know and love each other. He, by the way, was Buddhist. Yeah, and murdered. And murdered. murdered, yeah. Yeah. Tragedy. Yeah. So early on in the management of my coronary artery disease, I asked this very brilliant Johns Hopkins graduated guy why I had this disease, this condition. I don't smoke. I'm not overweight. I work out every day. I don't have any family history. I don't have high blood pressure and all that. And, and he gave me his very learned response. He said, luck of the draw. That was it. Statistical probability. Um, 
Everything connected with my not succumbing to this condition, which he referred to as a widow, widow maker. He, um, I asked him what would have happened if I had not had surgery, and he told me that was it. Everything connected to it, uh, my recovery, was luck. That it was found the way it did, that I lived where I do and not in some rural part of the country. And many people are not so lucky to luck. A certain percentage of people will get hit by automobile accidents, killed by automobile accidents this year. Others will get shot. Others will get robbed. Hurricanes will hit the Gulf Coast. And all of these incidents and more are what we would call the result of statistical probability. Some things happen because of human limitations. Just a few years ago, the surgical procedures used to detect, diagnose, and repair my damaged coronary arteries were not available. An invention had come into being invented by the surgeon who did my heart surgery mm. that allowed him to operate on a beating heart. He did not put me on the heart-lung machine. Wow. Many years ago, <clears throat> when I was a child, back when there were dinosaurs, <laughs> what they look like, Bill? <laughs> they, were, they came in all different sizes and mm -hmm. shapes. Some were little you could pet. Chickens. 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 <laughs> when I was a, a child, the scourge of every parent was the fear of polio. Jacqueline Webster. I love that name. Jacqueline Webster. The first girl I had a crush on in the first grade. But it was a hopeless, hopeless love affair because she was much older than me. She was in the fourth grade. Mm, tragic, tragic story. It <laughs> yeah. is a tragic story. Mm. Jacqueline got polio. Mm. When she came home from the hospital, she lived in an iron lung. I went to see her. Scary. And she died not long after that. Mm. And then some years later, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabine developed vaccines that have virtually eradicated polio from the face of the earth. Now, if you had to attribute God to having something to do with polio, I would bet on the side of the healing and the wholeness rather than on God afflicting some people with the disease and sparing others. I remember the day I got the vaccine. I got the Sabine version. It was uh, on a sugar cube. Mm. And that was it. By the way, when news came that there was a safe vaccine, um, church bells rang. Factories blew their whistles, front page headlines on the paper, polio routed. We don't have that kind of response to the vaccines that are going to wipe out COVID for some reason. I'm not sure why that I is. think systems have not rendered themselves trustworthy to certain communities. That's right. That's and right. I think that's a big, big deal. The third reason bad things happen is human evil. People, that includes me and you, anyone, can get in the grips of one of our misguided anxiety management systems, our addictions, and we can end up doing horrible things to each other. A person drinks too much alcohol, gets in a car, and drives headlong into a car carrying a family of four, killing everyone. God? I think not. 
People get in the grips of a complex that is activated by long repressed wounds from their family of origin and end up storming the nation's capital? God? Nope. Doing the work we do to nurture a transformative relationship to the God of Jesus protects us from nothing. Doing the work we do to nurture a transformative relationship to the God of Jesus sustains us in everything. So what is God's will? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, or set the world right, or let each of my actions bear fruit in accordance with your desire. So I tell you a Sufi teaching story. A man walked through a forest and saw a fox that had lost its legs, and he wondered how the fox managed to stay alive. He saw a tiger come with game in its mouth. The tiger had had its fill and gave the rest of the meat to the fox. The next day, the fox was fed by the same means, by the same tiger. And the man began to wonder at God's greatness and goodness and said to himself, I too shall just rest in the corner with full trust in the Lord, and he will provide me with all that I need. He did this for many days, but nothing happened. He was almost at death's door when he heard a voice say, you're in the path of error. Open your eyes to the truth. Follow the example of the tiger and stop imitating the disabled fox. That's the will of God. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargoes, so watch your step, and Holly and I will see you here next week. <laughs> see you soon.